The Colorado Business Roundtable unapologetically tells the story that business is a force for good in our community, featuring conversations with thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government. Welcome to A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. Thank you for joining us today on A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown, and this is Debbie Brown. I'm the president of Colorado Business Roundtable, and this is a place where we're able to bring together thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government and other strategic allies to talk about ways we can improve the business climate in our state. We believe that business is a force for good when business succeeds, people succeed, and that allows all of our communities in Colorado to succeed as well. So these are vital conversations. And one issue that is definitely in the news, top of mind for our entire community is immigration. And we had a recent event at MSU Denver uh, talking with thought leaders on this really important issue that's changing rapidly. And one of those folks who was part of that event is with us today. And I'm really excited to welcome Professor Alex Padilla with MSU Denver. Welcome to the conversation today, Alex. Good morning and thank you for having me. You bet, you bet. Tell us a little bit more. I know about your background from the event, but want to just hear a little bit more. You're a professor of economics, the department chair, and the director of Exploring Economic Freedom Project at MSU Denver, where you've been teaching here since 2002. What else can you tell us about you? Tell me more about your background professionally and personally, and what brought you to this position at MSU Denver? Well, my accent will tell you quickly. I'm not, I was not born in Colorado or Tennessee or Mississippi or Texas. Uh, yes. I was born and raised in France. So this is where my accent comes from. I was born in a suburb of Paris. And my parent, my dad is that my last name is Padilla because my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was Spanish and he immigrated to France because of the dictatorship that was taking place in Spain. And my mother is actually fully Spanish. But when she got married, she moved to France and I grew up and was born and raised in France. So I do come from a family of immigrants. I got my entire education in France. I got a bachelor, a master, and my doctorate in economics in a university in southern France, University of Aix-Marseille. The labor market for professor in France is very centralized and very political. So just having a doctorate in economics is not enough to apply for a job of professors. You have to send your dissertation to a, a national, the central committee of universities, which is a highly political. If you are not the right, if your professors are somewhat political and not the same, and the member of that committee, it's unlikely they will approve, even though you have a PhD or a doctorate, they will approve you to get that qualification to become a professor. You know, I sought opportunities to move to the U.S. I was offered opportunities because of my research interest to do a, to be a visiting doctoral student. I was a graduate student in France, but I spent one year at Auburn University. And then I spent another year at George Mason University in Virginia. And I was looking for job opportunities. I've learned since a very young age that the key to success when it comes to find a job is to learn to be mobile. So I moved to, there was a visiting professor, visiting instructor position at Metro State and I applied immediately. And amazingly, I got the job and the rest is history. 
<laughs> well, that's awesome. I didn't realize that about uh, France in terms of sort of the centralized approach to getting their checkmark, if you will, for being a professor. That's so fascinating and interesting to hear in light of our topic, your story of how you came to the United States and then found your way into Colorado and how that might have how has that shaped your views on topics like this? Because you've had that lived experience. Yeah. So at first, I think I have to be clear. I feel extremely privileged to be a U.S. citizen now. And I feel privileged that because of my education, my uh, journey to become an American was much easier than most people. Uh, the immigration system in U.S. is, like most systems around the world, is extremely complicated to become an immigrant. Uh, so you have a lot of hurdles and barriers. And it's, as I discussed during the panel, it's like a maze, but it's very complex. And if you do not come from the quote unquote right country, if you come from a country that has a lot of immigrants, the wait time to get a working permit or visa, working visa or your permanent residency card, which we call the green card is extremely, extremely long. So uh, I don't want to be too joking about that. But I guess that there's one benefit of being French is that not that many French people want to move to the U.S. So, <laughs> so I got my permanent labor certification very quickly, mm -hmm. my permanent uh, residency card quickly. But I hired a lawyer for both for my permanent residency card and for my green card, uh, my, sorry, my citizenship because it's such a complex system of paperwork where you have to fill up a lot, a lot of information about your background. You know, if you miss something, they just reject you automatically. It's not like, hey, please resubmit. They reject you automatically. If right. I can take you backward months or years, so I hired a lawyer to do the work for me or to assist me in working for my permanent residency card and my citizenship. And, and I've studied this issue and worked on this issue in some capacity off and on for about 15 years. And I think what would surprise folks who might be listening from the private sector is to your point, it's kind of a clunky, messy, I mean, it, it's almost like a central planning, clunky, messy system. It's certainly not modern. And when we think about, and again, we're talking about legal immigration here. We'll talk about some illegal immigration, you know, in the conversation, but our legal immigration system, when we think about how do we be strategic as a country in terms of bringing in talent or making sure we've got a system that's more market-based or more predictable, like that's not our system. Private sector folks would see the system and think, oh my gosh, you're kidding. This is how the U.S. does it. Like it's such a hodgepodge of odd rules, uh, you know, that, that aren't efficient. They aren't efficient for a business that wants to hire people. They're not efficient for a person who wants to come here. I mean, am I wrong on that? I mean, I look at it and I just think, why aren't we modernizing our system to just be strategic as a country? That is correct. So U.S. is a very big country, right? The immigration laws are not driven by local markets. You don't allow the state of Colorado to say, we need X number of immigrants. Or you don't allow local businesses to say, look, I'm in need of workers. Can we shorten the queue? Can we shorten the wait time? It's almost as complex or at least equally complex as a tax system. And there are many, many rules. And I'm not an immigration lawyer, but there are many, many rules, many, many requirements 
that makes extremely difficult and costly, and I think we need to emphasize that, for business. And the problem for uh, businesses in Colorado, because this is the Colorado Business Roundtable, is that we know that some of the industries are in need of workers. So there's two solutions as an economist we talk about when I teach about immigration economics, is you can either raise wages to attract workers to work for your business, because this is a basic economy, uh, supply and demand model. If you don't have enough uh, potential workers to attract workers, you raise wages. The downside of that is that someone has to pay for this increasing cost. So yes, most people say, well, shareholders should take a, a, a cut on their profits. But even shareholders, their primary motivation, yes, well, profits matter to them. Profits is a byproduct of consumer satisfaction. And there's a working paper that just came out that I quickly perused that show that most shareholders, they want their business to serve consumers, to create value, to also treat their workers uh, with respect, fairness, however we define fairness and not a philosopher. Uh, profit is just a byproduct of doing things right. But if you increase the cost of hiring workers, someone has to pay for that and consumers or not all consumers will be able to access those goods and services. And ultimately the people that suffer the most from that type of consequences are lower income families. So mm -hmm. we'll say, well, we know, look, look, if you want more workers, just raise wages. Yeah, I can raise wages, but some people are going to suffer from it. So the alternative is to hire people to increase the pool of workers. And that's extremely difficult for businesses to do because you have to meet a lot, a lot of requirements, particularly when you are trying to hire permanent workers. But even if you work, hire a working visa, you know, like uh, the typical H-1B is a three-year visa that is renewable one more time. There is a cap on that number of visa, and that cap gets reached extremely fast. Right, right. And it's not market-based. I think that's where I find it so interesting. Yeah, it's and, not driven by, yeah, it's it's, not, sorry, it's not dri driven, uh, driven by the demand. Yes, correct. Right. So whether you're a high-tech company or, you know, we need sort of seasonal agriculture workers, there's there's not any predictability for either side, you know, for the folks who want to come here and work for, again, legally, or for the companies that want to be able to hire legally. And it's sort of this interesting impasse, as you said, that then the economic levers shift. Uh, you know, I was I was fortunate we got to go to Vancouver on a trip this past year with a business delegation. And one of our meetings was with their um, immigration uh, folks who lead that and fascinating. And you've probably studied some of the different systems around the world, but fascinating on how they've um, sped up even citizenship, but visas and citizenship uh, for folks who are in high demand. And I think about like the tech tech community of needing, you know, people who understand quantum, for example. Do you see anything like that happening in the U.S. or do you feel like our political system is so up in arms currently that it's just hard to solve these problems. It's a human thing, right? So the human thing is that you are always afraid of what you do not know. And when you don't know something, you make assumptions. Enjoy those assumptions are made on stereotype or unfunded belief. And sometimes you are 
you know, you when you are a voter or citizen, you are going to vote for the people that say things that sound good to you. And the case of immigration, and there is a lot of studies that have been biggest investigated that. The issue is that most people don't know much about immigration. They don't know much about how hard immigrants work. They don't know much, how much uh, about laws and regulations that prevent immigrants from getting government benefits. So they make assumption that a lot of people want to come to the U.S. to get, you know, government handouts. But the reality of the thing is that most states don't provide those handouts to immigrants, and they have to be in the U.S. for quite a bit of time. So from a political viewpoint, the problem, it's a long answer to your question. Uh, the issue is that as long as voters and workers and citizens are going to be not well informed on immigration pol uh, policies and immigration research and science. Politicians are going to try to to just sell things that sounds right to voters to just to be elected. So as long as you make people believe that immigrants are people that come here to steal your job, to get government handouts, that they are criminals or that they, they, they want to change your culture and institutions. As long as people think like that or believe that, because, again, we have to be empathetic to them. They work a lot. They have Sometimes they have two or three jobs. They don't have time to come take Alex Padilla's immigration <laughs> pass. <laughs> well, and I'm going to get I'm going to get more into that in a minute with you, Alex, because I think the current crisis right now is sort of poured gasoline on an already very divided issue or very misunderstood all right. issue. All right. All right. But before I get to that, tell me, is there anybody doing it right? If you're thinking about kind of your the history of what you see around the world with with immigration, is there a country that you would say, you know, aha, that's the strategic way to do it from a policy standpoint? Or is everybody a little bit dysfunctional in a way and how they handle sort of their modern immigration pathway? I think it's very cyclic, cyclical in the sense that if the economy is not doing well, immigration is going to be the bad thing that explains why people are doing badly. And, and it's difficult to compare the U.S. to other countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates that have a very, very high share of foreign born. They have above 70, 75, 85 percent of their population is foreign born. And the issue is that None of those workers are actually citizens. They just come to the country to work. And I think that's a valid system as long as we understand that those people come for work. You can bring a lot of workers and they can stay as long as they want, as long as they are working. That when they are done working, they can go back home. I think the difference is that U.S. is a very, very big country and those are very small countries. I've seen system like uh, Hong Kong and Singapore that put some kind of uh, onus on businesses to ensure that their visiting workers return back home. Otherwise, they have to pay a fine. The fear is usually that people are going to overstay their visas. So you have to find mechanism to make it easy for people to come but also not encourage them to stay in the country that welcome them for work. I'm a little bit extreme in my uh, policy views. I think we should allow anyone that is not a criminal, that doesn't have a criminal background check to come to the U.S. to get a job. 
as long as they find a job. If a business is hiring you, you should make it easy for them to hire them and make sure that they, they are assimilated quickly in the society. But no, there's no silver bullet because we are talking about human beings. This is not goods and services like we engage in trade. So it's very complicated. My research so far tends to not agree with the assumption that when immigrants come from countries with different institutions, they are going to try to, you know, uh, import their own country's institutions into the country that receive them. So the idea, if you come from a socialist country, like USSR or China or Cuba, you are going to try to come to the US and put in place a socialist system and the evidence doesn't show that. And I think that idea that has been existing since even before the US was the US, right? Benjamin Franklin was talking about that. And then you had Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, and then later full time, people have talked about that over and over again. Those immigrants come from countries with dysfunctional, dysfunctional social system, bad institutions are going to come with their culture and import that to the US, which is going to destroy the US economy and the economic institution and political institutions that make the US such a great country and the evidence is not there for that. So your research still shows the end result at some point is a melting pot is still sort of the end result, even though we're richer as a country with the different cultures being mixed in. Is that sort of the, the conclusion? to some degree is what you're saying? Well, the, the research in economics tend to show that immigrants assimilate very quickly after two or three generations. The, the grandchildren don't even speak the language of their grandparents. And they, they have the same cultural, family, health, religious characteristic than US-born citizens from previous generations. But they also show that those immigrants tend, I mean, the bigger is the size of the immigrant group, right? The slower it is to be to assimilate the in terms of language assimilation, but in terms of education and in terms of jobs, they tend to assimilate pretty quickly and sometimes to surpass the children and grandchildren of US-born citizens. So one more question on kind of the economic impact in your research, and then I want to go again to kind of the issue of the day. That's probably yeah, of course, of course. But, that's um, my... What can you say? I've always thought it, 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 whether we're thinking of Colorado and a lot of the employers we represent are certainly have, uh, you know, an economic footprint here, but they also have a federal and global lens. So they're concerned about what's happening for our country's competitiveness as well. What's, what's your conclusion with the research you've done in terms of, again, modern uh, legal immigration as being something that makes our state and our country more economic, comp economically competitive, economically strong. Do you have any sort of insights on that? I mean, I'm guessing I could tell by your other comments that you're saying, yeah, we, we need it. We need a, a system that helps bring in talent uh, for many, many reasons, but I'd love your, love your thoughts on that from your research. Yeah, so economy, uh, let's be clear. U.S. is still one of the most preferred destinations for immigrants around the world. It is a country that is the most dynamic in terms of innovation, entrepreneurship, business creation, uh, productivity. And therefore, a lot of people want to move there because they feel, they believe their talent is being wasted in their own countries. So my viewpoint is that while the U.S. is still the best country to live in, uh, it could be even better. We could be even greater 
And right now we have other countries like Canada, and I mentioned that quickly in the in the round table, that Canada, and you mentioned it too, that Canada is trying to speed up citizenship for immigrants that have a permanent residence in the US to attract those workers, right? So they are changing the immigration to attract those talented workers, those people in STEM, in business, entrepreneurship, that have very difficulties to go through the immigration system in US to either get their permanent residency or their citizenships. So Canada is trying to just basically poach talent away from us. Right? And they're doing a good job. And they, what are, I could they are to some extent. They didn't want to tell me about what they're doing because they said, oh, no, no, we don't want the U.S. to steal our ideas. And I'm like, well, I don't think we're we're going to be stealing them anytime soon, but we'd be smart to. Yeah, I do want to temperate that, though, because I have to be honest, is that the research shows that a lot of immigrants that have permanent residence in the U.S. are likely to move to Canada because they get uh, Canadian citizenship. But then in the long run, they try to return to the U.S., because again, not trying to be like a broken record, right? U.S. is still the greatest country in the world because it's such a dynamic country. We produce so many amazing talents and ideas, innovation, entrepreneurship at every sector level that a lot of people want to move to the U.S. to be contributors to um, how Absolutely. great the U.S. is, to make the U.S. a greater. So let me get to the elephant in the room. And, and I'm curious your thoughts. My thought is the current illegal migrant move, you know, especially the what's happening at the border. Uh, you know, I was just looking at the numbers for December. The lack of border security has really inflamed this issue, I think, to a whole new level politically and it and it takes away the thought process of what you and I were just just discussing about how do we modernize our system and it really inflames it much more politically what would you say to this current migrant crisis how is it an additional layer on this uh you know there is the human element of people who are fleeing uh you know what's happening in their home country but then there's the human element here of not being able to you know, there's there aren't systems in place to provide for this level of influx. And of course, you know, it just adds more complexity and more political angst, I guess, on, on both sides of this issue, all sides of this issue. What what would your reaction be? You, know, you, you, you make the point very clear. We have to be empathetic on both sides of the debate. You have to be empathetic on the side of immigrants that are literally escaping hell from some of those countries like Venezuela. We have a lot of immigrants from Venezuela that came to Coardo. But we also have to understand that that put a strain on the government budget and you know, money doesn't grow on trees. And therefore, that has huge costs where the government has to make choices. The immigration system, such as we have in the U.S., and the labor laws and business regulations and occupational licensing put a huge additional hurdles to help those immigrants, even though they're undocumented, to assimilate fast into the, the country, into the society, and to work, to start working for businesses and get jobs. So my viewpoint is that that crisis that we have now makes it even more difficult to develop immigration laws to attract more immigrants, quote-unquote, legally. Because now, for example, I don't know if you read that this morning, the, the bipartisan agreement is to make immigration even more difficult, particularly when it comes to seek asylum and to be refugees. So they want to just, quote-unquote, close the border 
when you have a surge of immigrants because it's very difficult for the system to process all those immigrants. But if we want to help avoid that problem, we have to make immigration laws and policy much easier. Why do we need to have all those check marks, 100 check marks that are sometimes antiquated? I was born in 1973 when I applied for citizenship and my permanent residency card, I was asked if I was a member of a Nazi party in the 1930s. I mean, do you understand that I was born in 1973? It's impossible I was a member of a Nazi party in the 1930s, and it's impossible I was a member of a communist party either. So we have a lot of red tape that make difficult. So the problem is that we have this problem where people are very upset because we have a lot of immigrants that come through the border. And unfortunately and tragically, there are some of those immigrants because they have not been processed through the system, have ill intentions. So we have that huge trade-off when you spend a lot of money welcoming those immigrants, helping them find housing or shelters or hospitals, schools, but that money is not being spent on security. So what the research, actually there's a paper that just came out, is that with increase of undocumented immigration, you have a move to a conservative political ideology to have more law and order, to increase significantly law and order because there's a fail of danger because we don't process those immigrants. But at the same time, we also lose a lot of potential talent. So to answer your question more quickly. <laughs> it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yeah. It, it is a mess and it's very complicated. And as long as we stay in opposition, but there are some people that think immigrants are bad and some people that say immigrants are good. And we cannot understand that a lot of immigrants that come undocumented in the U.S. are coming undocumented in the U.S. because they, the time they have to wait. Right. It's not even a matter of money, by the way. I think it's a matter of time you have to wait to go process legally. It's too long when your life is in danger. I think we definitely agree on that. We've got to get good people in a room and talk about uh, modernizing our system. You know, it, it is antiquated. But also, I think there's a lot of support right now from both sides of the aisle and the administration on border security. You know, we can we can do all these things at once. And hopefully good people in our congressional delegation are are hard at work trying to problem solve. Before we move on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to take part in a couple of questions on our lightning round, but any last words from you, Alex, on where people can perhaps find your research or where you might direct some of our audience just to know more about this incredibly complicated issue. I mean, we could talk for a whole week about it and we're just kind of touching the surface, but um, what would be your closing thoughts on immigration? So uh, we've discussed that uh, we have to be empathetic for both sides of the debate. It's important for us educators and scholars to talk to people and to have a conversation with them and trying to explain what are the data, how, what is the science, whatever result, without being condescending. One of the problems we face as educators and people with PhD and doctorate is we have big egos. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to stop thinking we are superior because we have more education. We need to talk to people, have a conversation, understand their side and their their concerns and their fears and try to talk to them 
to show why some of those concerns are not uh, maybe are overblown, exaggerated. I have a website, www.alexandre, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-E, Padilla, P-A-D-I-L-L-A dot com. I am working right now to create what we call a micro-credential, where anyone can take that micro-credential of a couple of courses on political economy of immigration, immigration laws that people can sign up for. Of course, it's not free. But ultimately, you can email me. Good. <laughs> you can email me. You can come back to my office if you want to sit down, have a conversation with me, whether you're a business person, whether you're a worker, whether you're an immigrant, not an immigrant. I'm happy to talk to anyone, to spend some time to talk with people about immigration. That is, Thank you. I, I'm an educator. Okay. You don't have to pay me. You can come to my office. I'd rather have a call. <laughs> Nice. Well, I'll have to take you up on that. We were together just in December with at MSU Denver. I would say this. I think um, these kinds of conversations are really important because good people can get together with differing backgrounds, differing points of view, and hash some of this stuff out. And we're in a time right now where there's so much political divide and anger to some degree that that we want to help be conveners and problem solvers as best we can. Doesn't mean we're going to agree with everybody as a, as a Colorado Business Roundtable, but uh, we want to show goodwill and and work on solutions, which I think is important. So appreciate your time and being um, a tremendous thought leader, not just for Colorado, but for our country. And especially with your lived experience, it gives you a really nice background to handle this issue, I think, in a really productive way. Yeah. The last thing I want to say is that, uh, yes, I'm an academic. I work in a ivory tower. You know, I'm a kind of is living in a bubble. I'm extremely lucky because I have a you know, advanced degrees. And I think we cannot make the, the conversation move forward if we take a position of, I'm the educated one, I know better than you are. We have to have a conversation, live, understand people that have experience. I think the, the, the idea of talking about, you know, having a condescending attitude to a people because they disagree with you is not is not helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, n no offense, sometimes people with advanced degrees lose common sense as like the, you know. No, no, no. You're, no. It's not always. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. And when I was younger, I was probably more arrogant than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. All right. We're going to shift gears. We got just a couple more minutes left. But, um, Sorry about I that. Always end with um, sort of this lightning round, although I think you got the questions in advance, so you might not have to think like on top, you know, really, really quickly, but... I think I have to think about it anyway. <laughs> yeah. What's, tell us, where is your favorite powerhouse lunch or happy hour? Now, and again, you're an academic leader, so it might be a little different than some of our business leaders, but where do you go to like, you know, if you've got a powerhouse lunch or happy hour? I like to tag people to Osteria Marco on the Armour Square. It's relatively simple food. It's Italian food. It's very diverse. It's not overly complex. I think it's a great place. Otherwise, I take people to Degrees, a restaurant on campus, which is part of the hotel, and it's managed by our hospitality, uh, the College of Hospitality and Tourism. So a lot of people who work there are students uh, at the undergraduate level in hospitality. But I think Osteria Marco is one of the best places for power lunch. It's that's great. I haven't been lately, but I actually was just at the place you mentioned that's on your campus and was there with Dr. Davidson 
And that was really nice to see, uh, to catch up with her at that location. What is your favorite binge, whether it's a book, a podcast, a Netflix series? What's sort of your guilty pleasure in the binge department? Well, I watch a lot of sci-fi. I'm a big fan of a TV show that used to be called Fringe. I watch it a couple of times and it's five or six seasons. I like it because one of my friends was a, who is an economist, a professor of economics, was a writer on the show as well. So, so some Fun. of the economics into it. I just like science, science fiction in general. So mm -hmm. anything that is related to science fiction, I will watch it. The Marvel. Uh, I'm a big fan. I'm not like the Punisher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Final question for you, Alex, is what is your best advice for people who might be listening? Your best advice for getting a seat at the table? To be willing to, to be mobile, to have time, to be humble. Also, not to be like, I mean, like I say, I'm, I love money like anyone else. And when, if you pay me, I'm happy to be paid. But sometimes I'm happy just go to talk to people and say, if you cover my expenses, I will go to give a talk. So you want to be just open and flexible and understanding that people have different constraints. I love that. Open to opportunities, right? Yes, would, yes. And it, it again related to my background. Since I was raised, my parents taught me that the key to your success is to be mobile. And mobile means be able to be flexible on many things. Well, thanks again for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure we'll talk more about the, the changing landscape of immigration, how it affects our economy, how it affects people. And I really um, enjoyed the time today. So thank you. Yeah, I greatly appreciate you having me. I also want to say that I'm sure that even when an election year and the topic is going to be immigration, we will have more conversations. Maybe I'll stay a Marco for lunch. That sounds good. And thanks everybody for joining us. This has been our podcast with Colorado Business Roundtable, A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. And thanks for joining us today. A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown is a production of the Colorado Business Roundtable. You can find this episode, a listing of our upcoming events, and more information about our organization at cobrt.com.